topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is perception. And Satna, to first Satna, start with a sh- short event Satna, that took place uh, many, many years ago at Satna, the Mahasi Sasna Yikta, the Mahasi Meditation Center, the main meditation center in Yangon, Myanmar. At the time, I was, uh, I believe, still a lay you know, retreatant and uh, was uh, busy uh, meditating just like all of you. And uh, one evening I walked along uh, a road and uh, it was, uh, well, already not quite fully dark, but uh, uh, getting a bit darker. And uh, then at a distance next to the road, there seemed to be a snake. And just seeing that snake triggered an immediate, uh, the immediate arising of fear. And I thought, well, better be careful. And uh, went up to that object a little bit closer and discovered it was everything but a snake. Namely, it was just a dried, uh, curled, longish leaf. That was all. So you can imagine, um, uh, well, you know, the surprise Satna that arose Satna based on this. Then Sister Dolamin, who was looking after the health of the foreigners, just happened to walk by and I said to, to her, see that object over there? It looked like a snake to me at first sight. And she said, you're thinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so, now, uh, the reason for choosing uh, this uh, topic is uh, that uh, perception plays an important role not only to retreatants on retreat but also to us as living beings outside of retreat and um, as you can see from that small story from a long time ago in Burma uh, perception might easily turn out to be a so-called misperception or distorted perception. So not fully understanding the true nature of perceptions, we might at times get fooled by uh, such misperceptions. So to get uh, let us uh, explore what is meant by perception and then in which context the Buddha has spoken of perception, perception and mindfulness practice and then misperceptions or perception as it uh, uh, occurs in our meditation practice, uh, um, change of uh, perception, 
and certain things like this. And towards the end, we shall take we shall also take a quick look at how perceptions may easily contribute to a conflict. And certainly then at the very end, some uh, state or some findings that were findings from retreatants practicing at the Panditarama Lumbini Meditation Center, their findings how you know, perception had changed for them over you know, or in the course of intensive practice, the results of you know, meditation with regard to perception. So first of all, perception is from a Buddhist perspective, and modern psychology may have uh, uh, different uh, notions on it, is a mental factor, and it is one of those seven universal mental factors that occur with all types of consciousness. Now, perception is again mentioned in another context, namely in the context of the five aggregates. So the Buddha speaks of uh, the aggregate of materiality, speaks of the aggregate of feelings, and then as number three, we have the aggregate of perceptions, sanyakanda in the Pali scriptural language. The fourth aggregate is that of volitional formations, sankarakanda, and the last one is certainly the aggregate of consciousness, vinyanakanda in the Pali scriptural language. <clears throat> so being fully aware of uh, the many implications of uh, perceptions, the Buddha decided you know, to include perceptions as an aggregate. Perspe- perception is spoken of as being sixfold in terms of the five physical sense objects and mental objects. So there's certainly the seeing or perception of visible objects, there's perception of fitness sounds, perception of uh, uh, sense, of taste, of tactile experiences and mental objects. Now, the 22nd collection of Fatna the Samyutta Nikaya, Discourse Satna 79, contains a very simple, straightforward illustration for perception. And it says, And why, O retreatants, do you call it perception? It perceives. Therefore, it is called perception. And what does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white. Uh, 
It perceives, therefore, it is called perception. Now, let Hengsen make a distinction between perception, consciousness, and wisdom. They're not identical, although there's certain aspects that are somewhat similar. Now, the Visuddhimagga explains that perception is like a child's perceiving some coins, monetary coins. Consciousness is like an adult's perceiving of those same coins as having a certain value. In the case of a child, it's just that the coins are round and have a certain um, form or a certain uh, design to them, etc. And when it comes to wisdom, wisdom can be compared to an expert's perceiving of those same coins. So knowing from where those coins are, um, where they were originally made, and so on. Now, the Visuddhimagga gives us certain of the following definition for you know, perception. It certainly says the characteristic of it is the perceiving of the qualities of an object. Its function is to make a sign, so that, or as a condition for perceiving again that this is the same. Or the second function is recognizing what has been previously perceived. So there's the element of recognition there. So when one comes across an object that one has never seen before, then we have first this making a sign, and suddenly then having seen that object once, if one comes across it a second or third suddenly time, then what takes place is the recognition of that same object recognition that it is of the same kind. Perception becomes manifest as the interpreting of an object by way of its features that have been uh, apprehended. Its proximate or nearest cause is the object as it 
appears. The illustration that uh, the elder Buddha Kosa, the compiler of the Visiddhimagga, has certainly given for the perception is as follows, namely, it can be compared to a carpenter's recognition of certain kinds of wood, that suddenly he or she has pieces of wood that she or he or she has that made already, let's say, for a table. And then, by making a mark on each piece, and later on, when the time comes to put the different pieces together, then uh, to uh, take one piece, find the mark written on it, and then to know exactly uh, where that certain piece goes. Now, as mentioned already at the outset of this discourse, perception is also one of the aggregates. And the Visuddhi Magga then states whatever has the characteristic of perceiving should be understood all taken together as the perception aggregate. So all events of perception, and there will be many of those, perception of the present moment, the perception of the present moment, perception of perceptions of the past, perceptions uh, with regard certainly to the future, subtle ones, coarse ones, etc., all taken together form the so-called perception aggregate. Now, perception can be distinguished by the way of the sense doors. Perception can also be further distinguished by a way of the consciousness that they are associated with. So perception that arises in association with wholesome consciousness is considered then to be wholesome perception. Perception that is associated with unwholesome consciousness is unwholesome perception and perception that uh, is associated with indeterminate or functional consciousness is certainly then indeterminate or functional perception. However, in essence, it still boils down to the same thing, namely perception. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta provides us in 
the section of the contemplation of Dhammas, so Dhammanupasana Satipatthana, with three instructions for uh, perceptions or relating to perceptions. And those instructions are really short to the point. And they are as follows. Quoting from the Majjhima the Satipatthana Sutta, such is perception, such its arising, such its passing away. So just three instructions. What is meant by the first one? Such is its nature. Or such is perception. Well, it's just knowing the nature of it. The nature, the qualities, the features of perception itself. So from a theoretical point of view, let us explore the different or some of the features of perception. In the course of our meditation practice, we various objects will be occurring. We then label those objects, observe them, and know their nature. So objects will occur of their own accord. There's nothing we need to do there. Then there's the labeling. Then there's the observation. The observation of an object certainly involves which mental factor? Mindfulness, of course. And knowing the nature of an object involves which mental factor? Not quite. Close. Knowing the nature of an object involves perception. What's that? Investigation. Investigation. Wisdom. Wisdom. Knowledge. Inside. And certain. Uh, what remains is the labeling, and the labeling involves perception. So the name that we put on uh, a particular object. Now, when we observe a predominant object like the rising, falling, a movement of Vatna, the abdomen over a longer period of time, we will gradually come to perceive some of its certain features, such 
as sudden it may be, hardness in the rising movement, such as softness in the folding movement, such as the expansion in the case of the rising movement, and sudden uh, other uh, sensations for the falling movement. And thus perceiving the rising movement as a hard rising movement, or the falling movement as a soft falling movement, and the like. Now, in the course of our meditation practice, we are likely to discover quite soon changes in perception with regard to one and the same object. So in the case of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, at first it is seen as one continuous movement. Later on, retreatants might certainly say it seems to be a, a wave-like movement. Again, later, retreatants might say it's a segmented movement consisting of three, four, five, six uh, different segments. And again, uh, later on, retreatants might certainly say that, well, you know, this rising movement seems to be consisting of just dots, and so on and so forth. The Venerable Sadhu Panita Bhivamsa of Fatna Burma has on many occasions given a very vivid illustration for the workings of perception. Let us assume there is a rope lying across across the street and here comes a retreatant and from a distance see, looks at Satna this object on lying across the street. So seen from a distance the retreatant will think well you know, this must be a stick or it could be a rope. When that same retreatant moves forward, goes forward a little bit suddenly further and takes another look at the same object, the retreatant might suddenly see that it's suddenly not a rope, but suddenly rather something moving across suddenly the street. And Going even closer you know, to you know, the same object, the retreatant might discover a, a, a row of ants crossing the street, one after another. So what has been perceived from a distance is one thing. What has been perceived you know, from uh, or going a little bit closer is yet another thing, and Sapna being really close to the object provides uh, us with yet another uh, different perception.
Now, there are actually many cases where one and certainly the same object may be perceived in different ways. Now, the venerable side Ujjanaka Bhivansa of Burma, a very famous teaching side who founded Mahagandayan study monastery outside in Amarapura, outside of Mandalay in Burma, who has who wrote plenty of Dhamma books. He provides the following illustration f with regards to perception. So he says, and I'm quoting, human beings find feces disgusting yet for maggots, worms and pigs feces is choice food. Only Buddhas and Arahams see the actual true nature of all phenomena. Only such highly attained beings realize that all sensual pleasures are loathsome and disgusting. The Buddha declares all sensual pleasures are vile, base, being the concern of common folk, indulged in by ordinary common worldlings, not pursued by the noble ones, not tending to one's own interest. The noble ones positively denounce all forms of sensual pleasures. So we have the same object, however, the perception from a point from the point of view of uh, the maggots and worms and pigs is uh, uh, obviously different from that of uh, human beings. Now, would you have another example how one and certainly the same object is being perceived differently from different beings, living beings? That's an excellent example. That's your own, yeah. uh, your own take on it, yes. And certain of the tanks come with certain or provide certain another one. So a scarecrow to birds looks like what? Hopefully a person. Like it. It looks similar to a person, a human being. However, to a human being, a scarecrow is just a silly scarecrow. Now, the Majjhima Nikaya further 
uh, clarifies that with contact as condition there is feeling what one feels one perceives Now, a theoretical observation is, and this can be uh, then tested in one's own uh, practice, when perception is associated with wisdom, then there will be, uh, then it will be a right perception. However, when perception is associated with ignorance, or delusion, the result will be a wrong perception. Now, this mental factor of perception is oftentimes not well understood among retreatants. And most people on a very into on a very basic level assume that certain perception is something compact, something permanent. However, Retreatants who've gone quite deep in their own meditation practice will attest to the fact that perception itself is what? There you go. Perception itself, our, the mind's capacity to perceive objects, to perceive features of objects, that capacity itself is changing. And changing in the sense that at times the perception might be very clear, at certain other times it's not clear, and certain perception itself is arising and the next moment disappearing. Here comes the next moment of perception, it arises and it disappears. Perception at times might be slow, at times might be very, uh, very, very rapid. It might be fresh, it might be stale, and certainly so on and so forth. Now, perception as a mental factor is just another object and is a conditioned phenomenon and as certain as such, it is still subject to the three universal characteristics, namely anicca, dukkha and anatta. So, 
Uh, would it be correct to say, to speak of one's perception as I am perceiving uh, a red object? Obviously, that's not correct. So, close observation of perception itself and certainly the um, process of perceiving will show that it's just a process, just a very functional process, and there's no self involved in the whole thing. Although at times that sense of self seems to be there. Now, the Anguja Nikaya contains, in the collection of fours, Discourse 49. And uh, that discourse is entitled The Distortions of the Mind. And allow me to quote a translation by Andrew Olinsky, the uh, director of the Berry Center for uh, Buddhist Studies. These four retreatants are distortions of perceptions, of perception, distortion of thought, distortions of view. And the four are and I'm adding this, sensing no change in the changing, that's the first item, sensing pleasure in suffering, that's number two, assuming self where there is no self, number three, and sensing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. Their beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright. They present this profound profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So the four distortions of the mind are caused through not properly seeing impermanence by misperceiving unsatisfactoriness of formations by not perceiving properly 
the non-self nature formations and sadness seeing what is unlovely as lovely. And that sadness then, this will lead to distortions of perception and when there, when our perceptions keep being distorted, then this has an impact on consciousness itself. The way we are conscious of objects, the way you know, we um, possibly you know, think about them, um, reflect on them, and um, distortions of thought in turn, if they keep going on, will lead to distortions of view. And certainly this uh, may then skew up uh, a lot and uh, may lead to many difficulties. Now, would you say that the way we perceive a visible object is perfectly is a perfectly pure perception or not? Would you say that? Not. Not. Why not? Um, What's coming into the picture? Generally speaking, a visible object is only presenting color and form and possibly motion, and then the mind will make out of that uh, a solid physical object with a front and a back and a history and all kinds of other things that aren't really there. Ah, not so bad. Okay, very good. <laughs> mm, to give you mm, another uh, illustration, when someone uh, puts a few dots on a, a white piece, on a blank piece of paper, and those dots are arranged along the outline of a duck, and that piece of paper then is shown to someone else, and the question is read, put, what do you see? That other person will uh, jump, uh, will uh, say what? It's a duck. It is a duck. <laughs> there you go. And uh, if uh, that uh, person happens to be a hunter, uh, then uh, the hunter uh, may uh, immediately be interested uh, to uh, or might certainly be tempted to think about hunting and uh, uh, hunting ducks. Or if you know, the image of you know, the duck is rather is more detailed as outlined earlier on, a bit more detailed with further colors and whatnot, um, then an animal level lover that might suddenly come along and suddenly say, oh, what a precious uh, duck this is, this is a very rare species. And 
So the point I'm trying to get at is that perceptions are oftentimes, in most cases, cluttered through projections, through our biases, prejudices, stereotypes, likes and dislikes, views, ideas, etc. And the venerable Lady Siado of Fatna Burma mm, made it clear that Sapna beings tend you know, to be, or that uh, the perception of un- human beings tends to be uh, influenced by their own ways, by their customs, creed, and so forth. Now, perceptions can be extremely tricky and lead us to misperceive a situation, to misread a situation, let's say some social situation, and in you know, this certain way, it might certainly lead to the arising, or will lead to certain consequences. And the Buddha has given a beautiful illustration for this, as certainly given in the Udana section 68-69. And I'll try to uh, retell you know, this story you know, from uh, memory, and it's based on translation of Princeton University. A group of Fatna, because at the time of Fatna, the Buddha approached the Buddha saying, There are many wandering ascetics and scholars here in Sawati that go around proclaiming different ideas and views and suddenly they're disputing among themselves endlessly. And so these suddenly bhikkhus then address the Buddha and request him that he might address or ask him to say a few words about this. Upon this, the Buddha says, once upon a time, there was a certain Raja who then told his sadness attendant, royal attendant, oh good man, go to the town and assemble all the men born blind in that town and present them with an elephant. So the royal attendant does as he was told, goes 
and Sotna assembles all the blind men of the town and brings along a big elephant. And to some of these blind men, he gathers some of them, and to some he shows the head of the elephant and saying, O oh, blind men, this is an elephant. Touch it and this is an elephant. To another group of blind men, he says, um, he asks them to touch uh, the ears of Fertner, the uh, elephant and he says, no, no, this O oh, blind man is an elephant. And to yet another group, he shows Satna a task, and Satna to others Satna the trunk, and Satna to others Satna the foot, the body of the elephant, and Satna then uh, the tail, and Satna the. Uh, uh, what do you call that? The uh, well, the tail, you know, the tail of it, the hairs. What, what do you call that? The hair of it. You know. I forgot. The tip. The tip. No, 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 no. The, the hair, bristles. No, bristles of the tail. Yes. And so, so then, the uh, attendant, royal attendant returns to, to uh, the king and informs him that uh, the blind women uh, have been all gathered um, in the square. They've all been uh, shown you know, the elephant and suddenly uh, the king goes, well, uh, well done. And he then walks up to the first blind man and says, oh blind man, um, how do do you see this? Uh, what's it? No, wait a minute. What was this? Mm. What's it to you is certainly this elephant. And so the first uh, no, um, blind man, man and group of uh, blind men, uh, when asked uh, in this sort of way, uh, said, Well, um, uh, an elephant to me is like uh, a pot. And then the king goes and uh, speaks to the next group of blind men and says, now, what to you uh, is uh, an elephant? And the next group says, an elephant uh, to us uh, is like, a w like winnowing baskets. To the third group, the third group then replies, well, to us an elephant is like, um, like a pillar. And so those who had certainly been presented with the foot of an elephant, to those certain blind men who had been presented you know, the body elephant, they would say, you know, the elephant is like granary. And to those who had been presented um, the, uh, a task, they would say, 
You know, an elephant is certainly like a plowshare. Others who had been shown the trunk, they would say it would be like a plow. And certainly then those who had been presented with the tail, they would say it's like pestle, like a pestle. And so, and in no time, um, uh, some group or uh, group of blind men were saying, no, "No, this is not the case." Others would say, "Yes, certainly, an elephant is like a pod." Others would say, "No, it's like winnowing baskets," and so on and so forth. And uh, um, soon uh, they were at fisticuffs with each other, so uh, giving each other blows. Now, the king, the Raja, was delighted at the scene. And the Buddha then concludes his certain illustration to the monks by saying, see, this is what happens with those who are ignorant. It leads them to hold different views, different opinions, and they end up being disputatious, quarreling with one another. Now, are we any different from those blind men or women? We're not. And we keep falling into the same trap over and over and over again. And Our neighbors certainly might be playing loud music and we then perceive this as, well, not justified and we might certainly come to the conclusion or perceive them to be somewhat, well, non-considerate people. If those same net neighbors suddenly then throw a party and there's plenty of relatives and friends suddenly coming, having a good certain time, talking a lot and uh, uh, dancing, singing, etc. And then our perception of those neighbors certainly might be not only are they inconsiderate, you know, they're also pretty selfish. And suddenly they seem to um, have uh, no limits whatsoever. And so, when we hear, when the, the children of our neighbors run around and uh, screaming and yelling and whatnot, our perception might be, well, the parents certainly must be pretty useless. 
and uh, so it goes on and on and uh, soon we start perceiving our neighbors as what? As what? As bothersome. <laughs> As bothersome. And suddenly we might suddenly then conclude it's time to call the police. And uh, if that really happens and the police comes and investigates uh, this case of pollution, of uh, noise pollution, uh, uh, then uh, the relation between uh, uh, those two families will be probably uh, a bit suddenly uh, disrupted. Now, what may happen based on wrong perceptions between neighbors may also happen between two neighboring countries or maybe even between blocks of countries. And it is oftentimes or when conflicts occur, it is oftentimes that differing perceptions are involved. There's one of the same situation, but it's being viewed, it's being perceived differently from one side and from another side. And one approach, one aspect of conflict resolution is you know, to first of all clarify you know, the different perceptions that are involved in you know, some uh, conflict. And then you know, to um, promote understanding and uh, you know, to respond uh, to perceptions and possibly misperceptions through proper dialogue. Now, time permitting, allow me to give you another real a story that certainly nicely illustrates uh, uh, the conflicts that, that might uh, arise out of uh, um, differing perceptions. So a number of years back in Lumbini at the birthplace of Fatna the Buddha there was um, an abbot of a Tibetan temple. The abbot Sadna was of a European origin. He was suddenly there with the task to you know, set up you know, the, uh, uh, the Tibetan temple. And suddenly this abbot was a great friend of quietude, especially during the morning hours, early morning hours when he wanted to meditate. However, his monastery uh, was and still is located right next to the Chinese monastery. So the government of you know, the People's Republic of China has a monastery in Lumbini. Uh, so it's a sponsored China government sponsored China monastery. And um, usually there's a group of at least five, six, seven, eight certain you know, Chinese China monks residing there and uh, and their you know, duties 
are their sasana duties, so their uh, dhamma activities consist in, um, and a priority is chanting. And so chanting in the morning, early morning before breakfast, and certainly then, if I remember correctly, also during the uh, somewhere before lunch and definitely again in the afternoon. Now, the ambit of the, or sorry, and the chanting would include every day the hitting of a big drum. And the drum in diameter was just, was already one, at least a meter or a meter and a half. In length, definitely two to th definitely two meters. So you can imagine a young energetic monk hitting that drum early in the morning. It would suddenly disturb, or would cause quite a number of sound waves reaching the abbot of the Tibetan monastery right next door. Now. He put up with it certain several weeks, several months, but eventually he couldn't take it anymore. And Europeans tend to be sensitive to sounds. <laughs> uh, now, this certain monk, uh, in a gesture of goodwill, one day decides to walk over and meet with the Chinese abbot. And he then presents his case and says, listen, good dear friend, um, Dhamma friend, the, the chanting in your monastery every morning, especially the drumming, is certainly somewhat of an inconvenience to me. And because this is my meditation time, wouldn't it be possible you know, that suddenly you somehow or other reduce the volume of it? Wouldn't it be possible that maybe mm, you know, that uh, uh, beta with which the drum gets suddenly hit, that that gets covered at the front end with certain a couple of pieces with certain some uh, cloth? Now. The Chinese abbot was not pleased with this uh, uh, request. And later on he told me, the Chinese amongst there, the only thing they have in terms of Dhamma activities is their chanting. So if they are not allowed to do their chanting in the early morning, what is left to them? Nothing. And so he could not give in to the request. So nothing changed. However, um, the tension in the abbot of the Tibetan temple, as you can imagine, gradually increased day by day. Now, there was yet another um, event, and I you know, won't go into it because we don't have enough time. It's also fascinating, though. And <laughs> So, uh, there was a little bit more of friction between those two monasteries. And one day, the abbot of Fudna, the Chinese temple, decided to push the issue a bit. He walked over to you know, the Tibetan temple 
and picked up a couple of broken bricks and started throwing those at the gate of the Tibetan temple. In no time, the abbot of the Tibetan temple was out and came rushing out. And so just imagine he was a you know, big previously professional soccer player <laughs> in his home country. So two meters, or, or let's say 180 or 80 plus in size, in height. And so he walks up to... You know, you know, this certain rather short, certain a bit skinny Chinese uh, or abbot of the Chinese monastery and asks him, what are you doing? What's the purpose of this? Uh, throwing bricks at our uh, gate. And the abbot of the Chinese monastery, uh, the, sorry, the abbot of you know, the Tibetan monastery um, did not reckon one thing. All of a sudden he found himself on the floor, on the ground, the abbot of the Chinese uh, uh, monastery was a kung fu master, but this, uh, uh, the abbot of the Tibetan temple did not know, and so that's why he ended up on the ground. Fortunately, the whole thing ended there, and so, so he did not, uh, um, and, and uh, you know, didn't take it any further, and fortunately did not lash out at uh, you know, the abbot of the Chinese uh, monastery. Now, the whole thing went even further than this. Eventually, the Chinese, uh, um, the, you know, the whole thing ended up uh, uh, with the Chinese embassy in Kathmandu, and probably also with the Chinese government in China, and suddenly uh, the abbot uh, of the Chinese monastery was recalled. Now, the perception of the problem here, the core issue, is something, a difference of perception when it comes to you know, this chanting and drumming early in the morning. One side sees it as a nuisance, as a, you know, as a noise, and the other side sees it as a religious activity that cannot be cancelled. And so like this, there are thousands and thousands of cases. Now, the Buddha has given good advice or good counsel how to deal with conflicts and differing perceptions. And so he says that one should see others as one's relatives in samsara. So if you look at your opponent as a relative, then the whole situation changes. Now, looking at certain others as one's relatives is based on the following passage in the second volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, near section 189 to 90. It certainly says, It is not easy, O retreatants, 
to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. So in other words, we're all related to one another. Considering that we're all related to one another, you know, there's really no need to uh, go on, uh, go fighting or, or you know, pick, uh, pick a quarrel. Now, In terms of Abhidhamma aspects related to the perception, the venerable Lady Sayadaw of Fatna Burma has something pointed out. There are the ordinary five sense door processes. So this I or the seeing process, when with one's eyes one sees a visible object. Then there's the hearing process, smelling, tasting, and touching process. Apart from these very basic processes, Venerable Lady Sado points out, there are also the so-called consequent processes which then involve uh, the mind door. So mind door processes called manodwara witi in the Pali scriptural language. And the illustration that suddenly the venerable Lady Sado has suddenly given for f- f- for those five sense door processes with regard to you know, and then you know, the mind door process is like um, hitting a drum with a baton. So there is the initial hitting of the drum and that satna then will cause a sound and it will cause the sound to reverberate uh, many times. Likewise, when there is one single seeing consciousness or seeing process that takes place, so it's part of the five sense door processes, that will have its reverberations on the mind. And so there will be sound wave after sound wave um, that then uh, impacts, uh, or that sound wave after sound wave that uh, uh, takes place in the illustration. And uh, in terms of the seeing process, there will be one wave after another of uh, um, then mind door processes um, that are, are triggered by the original seeing process. And so as part of this first wave, so to speak, there is the perception of uh, the 
object as an entirety, then as a second wave there is the perception of you know, the object in terms of its its color then the in another in another wave the perception of the object as an entity and so then grasp sorry grasping uh, the object as an entity then recognizing it as an entity then grasping the object as a name and finally recognizing it as a name so there is not just one single perception or mind or uh, uh, process cognitive process you know, that occurs but several for a human being you know, to fully understand and fully perceive an object to fully you know, to then eventually come you know, to the point uh, where uh, the object is seen as, uh, let's say, uh, some human being approaching. <coughs> now, the Malukya Putta Sutta very much deals with perceptual processes. And the Venera Mahasi Sayadaw of Myanmar has written a book about the Malukya Putta Sutta, which is available in the English language. And there he points out in the discourse itself that as retreatants, we should seize the very first moment in the act of seeing. And that seizing the very first moment in the act of seeing then corresponds to a rather pithy instruction that the Buddha himself gave to Bahia, the um, as the wandering ascetic of uh, the or in the bark of the bark garment, and the Buddha's advice to him was: when seeing, there should be just the seen; when hearing, there should be just the heard, and that's it and not more than that. So one should not allow the mind or the perceptual process to be cluttered by feelings, by biases, by views, by ideas, by prejudices, stereotypes, and the like, because they tend to mess up the perception. Now, the mental factor of perception itself is, as explained earlier on, nothing permanent. It's nothing compact. And perception itself 
can be changed. It is an alterable state of mind that can be changed through a process of systematic meditative training of the mind. There are a few passages in the text that speak to this very aspect. One somewhat known aspect is those who engage in intensive metta bhavana, so mind uh, loving kindness meditation, will first be radiating loving kindness to themselves for a little while, then you know, to a dear person, and this for several days, and to a very dear person, with each shutdown person, then uh, the uh, absorptions will be developed, and uh, then you know, to after the very dear person, loving kindness will be um, uh, radiated to a neutral person, then to a hostile person. If this loving kindness meditation has been done properly, it will lead to a point where it breaks down the barriers between those involved to whom one had radiated loving kindness. So the distinction, the barrier between, let's say, the hostile person and the dear person, very dear person and neutral person, that barrier goes. And in the end, there's an equal amount of loving kindness towards oneself and others. So this shows you that our perception at first of a certain person might be as a hostile person, yet after intensive loving-kindness meditation, the situation changes and all are seen equally valuable and uh, there's loving-kindness, same amount of loving-kindness to all of them. In the same way, another passage in the text, and I keep I keep trying to find it. Sometimes I find it, other times I don't. This time I haven't found it. Um, there's another uh, passage, I assume, in the uh, Majima Nikaya, where the Buddha speaks of uh, training oneself uh, to such an extent uh, that one sees, one first sees the unpleasant as. Oh no! What was it? Um, the the loathsome as loathsome. Then one sees what is uh, mm, beautiful as beautiful. Then one trains oneself to see what is loathsome as beautiful, what is beautiful as loathsome, and finally one uh, trains oneself to perceive all uh, as. Uh, uh, just, uh, uh, just objects, and so this training of the mind you know, then could be 
extended you know, to one's perception with regard to, to certain you know, food items, certain items that one might, uh, uh, certain dishes that one might not like, also towards certain dishes that one might like, and so on and so forth. Now, since it's already very late, allow me to mention just one or two points from what our retreatants have said or stated how meditation practice had helped to change some of their perceptions. One retreatant pointed out that the meditation practice had helped him to mm, get a new perception on aging and death. So in our mindfulness practice, upon observing predominant physical and mental objects over and over again, and seeing them arising, changing and uh, disappearing, at times seeing them mostly as ending, 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 well, with this, there's a tremendous exposure to this breaking up of formations, in other words, the death of formations, and with this comes the realization, well, our own life is also limited, and it will end in death, and there's just nothing we can do about it. So that's certainly one um, uh, point, one benefit, that uh, one retreatant had uh, uh, mentioned. Another retreatant said that meditation practice helped her to time and again see her many, many own shortcomings. So flaws here and there. And that, in turn, helped her to be much more patient and understanding when seeing or experiencing the uh, shortcomings of others. So you can see there, too, a change of perception that uh, uh, comes about through intensive mindfulness meditation. There's so many other uh, points that could be given, but we're simply running out of time. Allow me to conclude today's, uh, uh, well, this evening's Dhamma talk on perception by wishing may uh, this discourse on perceptions help you to uh, better understand what perception is all about. May it uh, induce you to, or in, uh, uh, may it induce you to take a closer look at some of your perceptions, and uh, now thus uh, discovering the true and varied uh, nature of certain perceptions, may this help you to ultimately uh, then break free, may it contribute to a realization of the peace of Nibbana in this very retreat or some retreat in the near future. And this is it for now. Okay. I apologize for it.
bit over time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.